the mountain of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this portion of your word. We've come to heavenly Zion, and we look back at this mountain, and we see how you revealed yourself here, and we are thankful for how you have revealed yourself to your people progressively at each stage along the way. Our God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we, your people today, look at this word, would you help us to bow the knee appropriately and to hear from you and to respond with faith and even with the words of the Israelites that all that you have said, that will we do. Lord, help us. We have no strength in and of ourselves. Help us to understand and heed these words. For Jesus' sake, in his great name, we pray. Amen. So, if you climb the mountain because it is there, Moses climbed the mountain because God was there. One gets the idea as we look at this that Moses is glad to be back at this particular place. I don't know the last time you climbed a mountain. Uh, Lauren and I had a chance to do some mountain climbing up in Maine in the fall of this year. But certainly one of the things that you appreciate as you come to the top of the mountain as you reach the summit, you remark on the, the clarity and the perspective that you have now on the top of the mountain. And you have that actually, really, because you can see better, and metaphorically, because it gives you a sense of a greater expanse and of where you fit in things. And mountains have no small import in Scripture. In fact, Eden itself was probably on top of a mountain. Rivers flowed from it. It was a higher ground from which other things flowed. Noah found himself at the top of a mountain. Abraham offered Isaac on top of a mountain. You have Sinai. You have the people who will move to Zion in anticipation of the good news of the gospel. People will be told to get up on the top of a mountain and herald the good news. Jesus will preach sermons from mountains. The transfiguration will take place on a mountain. And indeed, Hebrews reminds us that we have now come to the heavenly Mount Zion. God wants Moses and the people at this particular mountain, at the mountain of God, because it is here that he is going to reveal himself to them. Now, interestingly, there's an inverse relationship that goes on while we're at Mount Sinai between clarity of sight physically and spiritually. Physically speaking, Mount Sinai is full of clouds and increasingly thick smoke. That's not great for seeing. So if you've done some mountain climbing and you climbed up the mountain, and it, 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 was, it was a cloudy day, you know, for a second you might have thought, well, this is really neat. We're going to get up and be in the clouds, and that'll be a, a great experience hiking up into the clouds, and then you kind of get up there and go, you know, this isn't very exciting. You can't really see anything when you're in the midst of a cloud. And so physically speaking, Sinai is, is there, but it's unclear because of thick smoke and clouds, while at the same time, spiritually speaking, you have one of the clearest revelations in all of the Old Testament regarding God, his character, his will for his people. 
Now much of this will be seen for the Israelites through the eyes of Moses. He'll be the one who a number of times here over the succeeding chapters is going up and down this mountain, reporting what he has seen and sometimes having others close by, other times at a distance. But he will be in particular their eyes and the voice of God for them. And this first trip, this first trip up and down and then back up again is among the most critical times, ascensions and dissensions for understanding all of what is to come. In fact, I have said to my kids for many years, you have to understand this. If you forget everything else I teach you, don't forget this. My kids, can, when they were little kids, could tell you what the preface to the Ten Commandments was. You have to be able to understand this or you miss the rest of Scripture and certainly the rest of the Pentateuch. You've been carried and commissioned, now be committed. And that's the structure that we're going to use to look at this. You've been carried and commissioned, now be committed. First of all, you have been carried. So Moses leads the people to this particular place, and you know, we have to read between the lines maybe just a little bit here. He recognizes it. Yes, we're back at this place where God told me he was going to bring all of us. He was going to bring this entire nation. This is the sign that I have been waiting for. And so he gets there, and apparently without any summons from God, he knows what to do. He goes up the mountain. And indeed, God speaks to him from the mountain. As God had done earlier from the burning bush, now God speaks to Moses once again. He is there, and he is not silent. And of course, fans of Tolkien and all of the rest of us love the words that we read in description of this, where God then speaks in verses 3 and 4. God says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that is summarized then in the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All of your days, house of Jacob, people of Israel, all of your days... Remember this, know this, recall this, tell this to your kids, tell it to your grandchildren, have them tell it to the grandchildren to come after them. That I am God, that I am your God. And when you were lost, when you were oppressed, when you were in slavery, when you were in a situation in which there was absolutely, positively no hope of human deliverance, there was nothing you could connive, contrive, conceive of to get you out of this situation. When you were there, when you were trapped, I set you free. I saved you. If you will, I sent in the eagles when it looked like there was nothing else that could get you out of this situation, that is when the eagles swept in, and you can pick which image you'd like to have of eagles, and you can reflect back on your Tolkien movie, movies and how you thought about it, whether you picture yourself or Israel being in the talons of the eagles, or whether you picture yourself riding on the back. It's a metaphor. Nevertheless, that is exactly what happened. This is the great statement of the gospel the summary of all that has proceeded, of all of the 18 chapters that have come up to this very part. 
of Exodus. I put you on eagles' wings and I bore you out. And the same is true for us. When you and I were lost, when there was no shred of hope in our lives, when we were in our own bondage, the bondage which is pictured by Egypt, which in fact for them and for us is greater, namely the bondage to ourselves, to our sin, the bondage to a kingdom of darkness in which we were sealed by Satan, the bondage that we had to death. When you and I were in the most hopeless of situations, God sent in the eagles. Now for us, for you and I, we understand that with a great deal more clarity than did the Israelites. God did not send in eagles to deliver us. God rather delivered us through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. We are not born on eagles' wings. We are carried in the arms of Jesus Christ. And so when God found us in that situation, get this, it's even better than eagles. Eagles picture and swoop in, grab you, and swoop out. But instead, what Jesus Christ did is he came in, he took the punishment, he took the death, he absorbed what was there. He didn't just swoop in, free you, and swoop back out. He came in and absorbed the penalty and the punishment on our behalf and then carried us out, brought us out of that place. And not only did he bring us out, but he brought us to God. And this cannot be missed in the section that we're looking at here. The eagle didn't simply drop them in no man's land. Now, it was pretty desolate, but the eagle didn't also take them to Canaan at this particular point. Could have, right? The eagle they could have gone all the way. The eagle brought them, and this is what God is saying here in these words, brought you to myself. Let's say this as clearly as we possibly can. Our redemption, salvation, our deliverance comes before. It precedes the giving of the law. We have to understand this sequencing that is presented to us here in the book of Exodus, in these works that God has been doing. The work of being delivered out of slavery for them to Egypt, for us to sin and death, is the solitary work of the grace, the power, and the mercy of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How often, how often are the Ten Commandments disassociated from that story? They're posted in places, how often posted with the preface, without which they're incomprehensible. They may reflect some good moral codes, but they're incomprehensible without the story of deliverance. Or, even worse than that, they become something else. They, they become inverted in their very purpose, and it looks like obedience to that code will be the means by which you earn your wings. The wings came first. The wings came first. The work of Jesus comes first, and we can't mix it up. You were carried, and you were commissioned. Let me read again verses 5 and 6 for us. The commissioning. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The point of marriage is not the wedding. It seems like that when you're in preparation, right? It seems like everything is all the money, all of the time, all of the decisions are going into the wedding itself. But the point of marriage is not a wedding. The point of marriage is life together. And, and the point of being brought to God on eagle's wings isn't to just get there and lay around. They haven't been delivered into a comfortable chair where someone brings them chocolate at their bequest or, or hands them a remote, says relax. They haven't even been brought to Canaan. The point is to live together. I'm your God, you're my people, and here's what that means. Here's what it means. Obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, if we stop to think about that, there's a sinful part inside of us that recoils a little bit at that statement. Because here's the way our logic goes. Wait a minute. Didn't I just get set freed from slavery? Didn't, didn't, didn't God, your eagle's wings, just take me out of this need to listen to my voice, heed my commands, obey what I say? Didn't I just escape from that? Wouldn't freedom allow me to do what I want to do, to be who I want to be? Why are you telling me that I need to obey and keep and the Lord could respond to that, I am no despotic potentate. A potentate he is. The potentate of time, isn't that the way the hymn goes? The potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. But I am your loving God. I'm the Lord of all heaven, of all the earth, of all time. And I called you out to serve. And in serving, in obeying, keeping my commands and my covenant, listen to this, you will ensure and protect your freedom. You and I often feel like the commandments are God, of God are a restriction on our personal freedom. Kids, you often feel that the commandments of your parents are restrictions on your personal freedom. Shouldn't you be free to do what you want to do, to make your own decisions, to decide how late you want to stay up, whether or not you can go over to that friend's house, and how much you want to eat and what you should eat? This is a simple analogy. But let's say this. Top of the mountain, God says to Moses, Moses, don't jump off the mountain. And Moses says, well, God, I'm free. 
You just freed me. You freed the people. I want to be free to be able to jump off of the mountain if I want to jump off of the mountain. I want to be free to drive around this curve at 150 miles an hour if I can drive around this curve at 150 miles an hour. It's my decision. And God says, listen, Moses, don't jump off the mountain. The day you jump off the mountain, you'll die. Who is the protector of Moses' liberty? Who? Who's right? God is giving his law to his people not to restrict their freedom, but to protect their God-given, God-granted freedom. The great lie of Satan, and it's the lie of our own flesh, our own self as well, is that God's law and obeying him is restrictive drudgery. When the reality is the law that we'll be looking at for weeks to come is born of love, for love, for freedom, and for good, and the more you obey them, the freer you are. The more you obey them, the freer you are. Kids, if you could get this principle into your lives and understand it, it would transform. The more you obey, the more you get free. And the less you obey, the more restrictions there will be. True for kids, true for adults, true for everyone who looks at the law of God. You're freer then to experience the goodness of God and to enjoy these things. To enjoy what things? Well, God enumerates what you will enjoy if indeed you will obey and hearken and keep. You will be a treasured possession. A king who has something that he loves and he protects it. You will be that treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests which is to say that in the midst of this world, you will be a people who are mediating the grace and mercy of God to all the people who are around you. And you will be a holy nation, a people set apart, a people different, a people who have the law of God, the commands of God, and a people who have God dwelling in their midst so that they are a worshiping people of God. Now, you recognize that language, the language of being a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You recognize it because it's the language that Peter picks up in 1 Peter, and we read that earlier in the service. I've got to pull out my bulletin, sorry. I don't know where I put my bulletin. You got a bulletin? <laughs> Thank you, brother. Great notes. I'm going to preach on your notes. So we recognize the language from Peter, and Peter says, okay, Israel had this call. Now, church, Gentiles, you have this call as well. On the front of your bulletin, I copied this verse from Hosea. It's a favorite, and I love it. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. In other words, us, Gentiles, not part of Israel, not my, we're the ones who are no mercy, or not my people, that's our name, no mercy, not my people. We've become his people. We've become the ones who have the mercy that has been given to us by the grace of God, by the goodness of God, 
by his incredible loving kindness in our lives. And, and you can look at it like this. Here, here's what God has done. He's called us out. He's carried us out. And he's commissioned us. And you can think the, the, the battle imagery, the army imagery works here. We've been brought out, carried out, and received and given a commission by God. You heed, you obey, and this is who you'll be. Treasured people, holy nation, royal priesthood before me. Now commit. You are not a stone, and you are not a block of wood. We read that together in Sunday school a few weeks ago. We were looking at uh, the Council of the Synod of Dort, and it said, you are not a stone, and you are not a block of wood. You are a person with a will, and you are responsible to respond to this call. Moses comes down from the mountain, as God has told him to do. And he tells Israel, he gathers up the elders, and apparently the people are within hearing distance. We, we can't figure out exactly the logistics of how this takes place. But Moses conveys to the elders and to the people the words of God, the requirements of God. And they respond together in verse 8, not for the first time, or not for the last time, it'll be repeated at other points, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The scene will repeat itself at various times in Israel's history. Moses will repeat it with the people at the end of Deuteronomy. Here's what it will sound like then. Moses will say, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, for He is your life. Choose life. Later, Joshua, once they have come into the land, will say the exact same thing. We'll put it before them once again. Choose this day whom you will serve. The fact that you and I have been born on eagle's wings does not mean that we get a free ride. You and I are called to bear. Having been born on eagle's wings, we are called to bear a cross. We are called to bear one another's burdens. We're called to bear this commissioning, this responsibility that has been given to us. And we're called to commit. We're called to make a response, to say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Now, you and I know that there's going to come a lot after this that it's one thing to make that statement, it's another thing to live it out as Israel is bound to find out here within the next few chapters of Exodus. But that is the call that we must have. There is no autopilot option in the Christian life. 
No free ride, no autopilot. Thus, on the mountain of God, though the forecast is for increased cloudiness, thickening smoke, thunder, lightning, fire, trumpet blasts, thundering voices, and ground tremors, clarity is emanating. A covenant is being made. One can't say everything in one sermon. This is a covenant. It is in the form of a covenant. It is a covenant document. It is God saying, I am your God. I love you. I took you out. You are my people. I love you. Obey me. I will dwell in your midst. I will come in a thick cloud I will dwell in your midst, and so worship me, because I'm in your presence, and you are in mine. My friends, you and I have in Jesus Christ the reality to which this pointed. Over the weeks and months to come, one of the challenges that we will have as we work through Exodus is to try to understand what of this belongs to us as the people of God living now, what belonged to Israel as a nation living at that time. It'll be a great challenge to us to work through those things and try and understand how you interpret this scripture correctly. But the superstructure is there for all of God's people in every age. The superstructure, the outline, this first part, this belongs to all of us. And so, is your faith wavering? Is your zeal waning a little bit for the Lord, for his people, for his church, for his kingdom? Well, the specifics and how do you repent, how do you serve, they'll come. If you like specifics, there'll be plenty of specifics in the law to follow. But for now, the call is to come to the mountain. You come to the mountain, and you receive the grace. If you are here today, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, then consider this. Consider, I'm not calling on you to choose. God is not calling on you to choose. We're calling on you to receive. You cannot do anything to get yourself out of the situation of bondage to sin and death. Besides, Trust in Jesus Christ. Receive the grace that is being offered to us. Receive the grace, embrace the commission, and commit or recommit yourself as is needed. The call to choose belongs to the people of God. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose life and live in the presence of God. Let's pray.